Welcome to episode four of the Georgia Criminal Law Podcast. A special treat for the listeners today is we have our very first guest in the history of this podcast. We have Mr. Charlie Cobble, who is also a criminal defense attorney, personal injury DUI attorney here in Noonan. And I'll give Charlie just a moment to introduce himself and tell the people where he's at and how people can get in touch with him. I'm Charlie Cobble, and I've always wanted to be referred to by someone as a special treat. So, uh, uh, today is a good day. Uh, I'm a criminal defense attorney and personal injury attorney here in Noonan, Georgia, and uh, um, have an office right in downtown in one of the most charming, uh, uh, still thriving uh, downtown uh, economies and uh, in cities in Georgia. And uh, uh, like uh, your host, Mr. Ryan Brown, uh, work hard for my clients every day. Um, for the most difficult situations they may be facing, whatever it is, uh, whether they're injured or whether they're charged with a crime that they that they may have some responsibility for, or they may have absolutely no responsibility for. So um, I like to help people, and I get to do that for a living. So I'm, I am a lucky guy, and I and I feel like a special treat today, Ryan. Well, great. Again, so this is Georgia Criminal Law Podcast, Episode 4, presented to you by J. Ryan Brown Law with the special guest, Mr. Charlie Cobble, on today. Today's topic is going to be a little different than in the past. In the past, we've talked about bond, um, how you get a bond, what goes into bond, what factors judges consider in setting bond, things like that. We've talked about the intricacies of grand juries, how grand juries work, how many people are on a grand jury, who gets picked for a grand jury, accusations versus indictments. We've talked about that kind of stuff. But today, we've purposely got a guest who has tried many cases, and we're going to talk about what goes into the decision on whether or not you're going to take a case to trial or not, particularly in the context of criminal law and criminal justice in that, you know, you can look up any stat. I'm sure you can get as high as 99%. Almost every single criminal case ends in a plea resolution. I mean, across the country, but particularly in Georgia. I, it's easily in the in the 90s to high 90s, I'd say. Um, it's got to be, I would say, 98%. I mean, really, I mean, you know, I have a case that's docket number is in the thousands, you know, in, for the, one particular county in this circuit, and there's no way that they're going to try more than more than five or six of those, I, I would say, I mean, in, my, in my guess. Maybe even if they tried 10, you're still looking at, at less than a, a percent. And, and there's still probably more dismissals of indictments or charges than there are trials, I right. would say, too. Yeah, there may be positive outcomes that come, whether it be dismissal or, you know, things like that, but not necessarily trial. The actual percentage that ends up in trial is, is very small. Um, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I know that you have tried more cases than probably the average attorney here in West Georgia. And I just today, I really want to get down into the details of from a from a defense from someone who's been charged with a crime, as well as from their lawyer, what what their perspective and what their thought process is in deciding. Hey, this is a case we need to take to trial. We're going to talk about, and then after that, I really want to talk about sentencing as it relates to trial because, and I think those things are tied in enough to where they'll kind of flow naturally. But the first thing I want to say is what, when you're considering taking a case to trial, how much of that is dependent on what kind of client you have in that case? Is there a special kind of client that you see that goes to trial? Does it depend on the crime that's been alleged? Um, what, what is really the consideration? Is it more client-focused, crime-focused, judge-focused? What, what is that? Uh, well, that's that's a big question um, with a lot of factors, and I'm going to generalize the best I can, um, which I think is is what you're asking me to do, and I think I do have the experience to generalize, but it is a little uncomfortable because every case is different, every set of facts are unique, so, um, you know, with that, that understanding that it, that it is generalizing, I'd say that, you know, I got into, I started working in the Coweta County Public Defender's Office 
out specifically outside the uh, metro Atlanta area because I wanted to get in the courtroom and try cases, uh, get involved in real court activities in front of juries as quickly as I possibly could. It's what I wanted to do, and I had the fortune to be able to do that, and I was in the, the public defender's office um, for a number of years and, and now have continued to try cases in private practice. And um, as far as Coweta County area goes, I, I would be surprised if there was an attorney that had tried more over the past 10 years, more jury trials than I have. Um, uh, each one is different, but these are uh, specifically referred to felony. My experience is with felony Superior Court criminal jury trials. It, it's a lot easier. There's a lot more cases tried in state court misdemeanors where the stakes aren't as high. Just as a matter of fact, uh, a felony in the state of Georgia is defined as any crime that is punishable by more than one year in incarceration, but uh, the fact of the matter is most carry up to at least 5, 10, and up to uh, 10, 20 in life. And uh, I think there's a lot of, I've, I've probably tried, uh, however many cases I've tried to a jury, um, uh, there have been at least 10 times as many that I have prepared for trial and was ready to go to trial on, which is you know, just as exhaustive work, and you have to have a brave client and a courageous client that's willing to even consider taking a trial, uh, a case to, to trial. I think fear is one of the biggest uh, motivators that people have, fear of uh, uh, of the wrong outcome, the jury getting it wrong, uh, distrust of the system. Well, I want to I ask you about that fear because I have, you know, many of my best friends in life still are friends that I made in high school, middle school, college, stuff like that, who don't necessarily, they're not involved in, in, they're not lawyers at all. They're not definitely not involved in the criminal law. And, you know, they see a, they may see somebody who, who pled guilty to something and it, it may look like a sweet deal or something like that. And we get to the discussion of, you know, if you were in the situation where you were charged with uh, two counts of aggravated assault, which are both one to 20, meaning you're facing 40 years in prison and all of a sudden you get offered 12 months, you know, I've had that conversation with my friends. Like, if you're in that spot, you've got no record, anything like that, you've been falsely accused of something, you know, are you willing to take that to trial? And my initial response I get from a lot of people is, well, if I didn't do it, I'm not, I'm not pleading something I didn't do. Um, but I think that when you're actually charged and you're actually, and it's not hypothetical anymore, and you know that you're, you are facing up to, you know, decades in prison, that that fear really can take over. Um, is there, how do you combat that with a, with a, with a client who may be in your office saying, I didn't do this, like I am innocent, but, but I, my exposure is high and they're offering me a kind of a good deal. I mean, what is there? It, it's powerful, uh. The system is designed, I, I think, in a lot of ways, and a lot of the actors, including uh, our profession, defense attorneys, are, are kind of a part of the system that is designed to encourage plea bargaining and plea deals, and there's not a lot of great statistics. Uh, I think that's why we're generalizing. There's not a lot of great statistics on uh, exactly how many people plead guilty or take responsibility for things they didn't do, but uh, as a baseline, um, you have to have, an, first of all, you have to have an attorney that is not afraid and willing to go to trial. Because it's scary. I mean, we're not going to jail if the jury comes back and finds our client guilty and they're facing 40 years and the judge gives them 40 years after trial. We still get to go home, but it, it, it's scary uh, having that kind of responsibility and uh, knowing that uh, you're the last line of defense. I mean, this, you're the only thing kind of between this person, this individual, and, and them going to prison. So it takes an attorney who's, who's not afraid and, and willing to, to frame the options in as objective of a way as they can in terms of trial or, or a plea. But at the same time, what I found is some people just have that faith or courage or, uh, like you say, like, I didn't do it, I'll never admit I did, inside them 
um, that is that is there before they ever get to my office, before they ever meet me as their attorney, that 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 is different than some other people that will just they don't even consider going to trial in a lot of ways because they're they're so terrified that the jury's going to come back find them guilty because there's always a bad fact or there's something always smells bad. Um, and because they're charged. I mean, the state of Georgia has decided, now the grand jury has decided, even though it doesn't take much, that, uh, you know, they're guilty of this. And now it's just left to these 12 people uh, to determine whether or not the state has proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And the, the judge is likely going to sentence them uh, to some prison time it, after they're convicted. I mean, it's common understanding that if you go to trial, you are convicted of a, of a felony offense, which every felony offense is serious carries prison time, uh, uh, that you are going to go to prison. So, essentially, if you're making the decision to go to trial or not, you, you're you understanding that if you lose, you're going to prison for some amount of time, depending on the charges. And some people can't stomach that. Uh, I, I've had so many clients, uh, you know, I've represented thousands of people, but I've had so many clients I could go back and say, and a lot of these were the cases that I prepared for trial, um, had really, uh, really felt really good about the defense. You can never make a guarantee about what 12 strangers are going to do, but they've chosen to plead guilty, particularly when it involves them being able to avoid any kind of incarceration. I mean, people plead guilty and take responsibility for things that I don't believe they did all the time because of that. And it takes a courageous person to go to trial when they're facing time uh, or the the possibility of time, but it, it takes a really courageous person to be offered probation and go to trial knowing that if they lose, they're probably going to go to, go to prison. I mean, Turning people, down a guaranteed probated I, offer. I think people are risk, risk averse, mm-hmm. generally. So you need a special person in order to get to a jury trial, which to me is just it's the way the system works. It's the way I've always known it. But it's still a little mind-boggling at times because uh, I think one of, the, one of the distinguishing factors of our justice system is that we have the right uh, to have a trial by jury. You, you can't be held... Uh, accountable for a crime, uh, you know, without uh, a jury deciding whether or not, uh, you know, the evidence is sufficient. Um, Look, let me ask you this. There, you know, I've talked in the grand jury episode before about how prosecutors have so much control over exactly what charges are, are brought in that in a grand jury room, it's just them. They get to decide what charges to present to the grand jury. They can add charges, subtract charges, everything like that. Is there, do you think there is so that puts them in a position of leverage. They have all the leverage in plea negotiations most of the time in sense. Do you think that there is any truth? I'm, I'm going to say a statement. I want you to tell me true or false. The The best way for a defend, defendant and his attorney to have leverage in the negotiations is for a prosecutor to know that they are willing to take the case to trial. Is that the best leverage a defense attorney can have, having a prosecutor who knows he's not afraid, afraid to try the case? Does that impact negotiations at all? Um, Generally true. Generally, and obviously, we're speaking in generalizations. You can't you can't make a blanket statement in this kind of discussion. The about best it. way to get the best result for your client is to prepare the case for trial. Mm-hmm. If there is a plea offer, a plea bargain, it, the system is so designed to get to it that you don't really have to be very proactive. Right, uh, it will come to you. That's what I found over years of experience. I I didn't learn that the first week, the first month, the first several years, but prepare a case for trial, and you'll get the best result. Yeah. You probably won't be going to trial. Right. And I, I tell my clients, you know, some clients come in and, and you, you know, every situation is different. But in general, when a client comes in, the, the, the mindset is, hey, we're going to start getting ready for trial today. And then at some point, if a plea offer or something's made along the way that makes sense, we can talk. 
But the, the best way to defend you against this case is to take a posture of, hey, this case is going to go to trial, and if something happens along the way that changes that plan, so be it. Um, and, and, and the clients usually don't board that. You know, they understand that the negotiations go. What you just said touches, like, you know, and, and often any kind of examples like that, to me, go touch personal individual cases. And what you just said just rang so close to a case that I have right now that's very serious charges. It's, the charges are now murder charges or felony murder charges, which go into your prosecutorial leveraging statement because uh, they were originally uh, aggravated battery and, and other felony charges. And uh, someone ended up dying later on uh, after surgery. Um, and uh, when the prosecutor looked at it, it turned into a felony murder charge because they could. The, the, I think the law supported it. But really, it was they were. I don't. I don't believe in my heart they were ever going to pursue a, a murder charge. I, I think it was all about leveraging and positioning the case for plea bargaining. But what really like struck me and made me think of this case uh, is I approached it the same way, especially a serious charge like that, as I do many others preparing it for trial. And so, as you're having conversations with a client, you mention jury trial or trial or this at trial or that at trial. The word jury trial. I, I noticed was having like a traumatic effect. Like it put put off your client a little bit, maybe. Like a, they were scared. They they don't want a jury trial. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I believe this client is innocent. I I, I believe this was an accident. Uh, I believe we have a strong defense. I believe we're going to have to continue to put our head down and prepare it for trial. But but for this client to have the courage to do it, I mean, he's fortunate that he has no real other option. I mm-hmm. mean, you plead guilty to murder, you're getting life or life without parole. That's right. Um, and that's not going to happen. I know that. Um, but just there's a it seems to be a traumatic response i had to recognize it take a step back and explain to them like when i refer to this or that doesn't mean that we have to go to a jury trial or there will be a jury trial but this case is going to be prepared for a jury trial because that's the only way to get the just outcome and it may be in a courtroom decided by 12 people right and thank god that those 12 people uh, uh are right uh, and and are there really is the final check that's right. On and, justice. And we talked about there has to be courage from client and lawyer. So we've talked a lot about it's really got to be somebody who's got, who makes a decision that's something they want. From a, from a lawyer perspective and you preparing for trial, is there a portion of the trial that you find the most challenging, whether it be the prep or picking a jury or an opening statement or a closing statement? Is there something that you find during the process that's more challenging? Or is it kind of one of those things that you know, the lead up is stressful, but once you get started, you're rolling, you're in the groove, you're in the zone, and you, it's just before you know it, it's over. Yeah, somebody at one of these seminars one time uh, gave an analogy that really hit home to me. It's kind of like getting ready for trial, especially earlier in my career, and, and I think you always want to have some kind of anxiety going into it, some kind of emotion or feeling, because I think that's what makes you invested in it and makes you uh, good at, at, at your purpose in in the moment or in the proceeding. And uh um, someone used an analogy of a kind of like waiting in line for a roller coaster, um, and it's nerve-wracking, and the ride is so long, and then you get on it, and it's just, uh, um, it's just completely different and wonderful. It's, it, it is difficult leading up to it. It's always good to get started. I'll tell you one thing that frustrates me is that there's the process of jury selection that always begins the trial, which to me is just uh, exhausting and uh, draining. It, it's just like a way to like drain your energy uh and emotions right before you really start the trial. And it's also so important because usually you're, you, there's 12 jurors, um, but you there's a selection process. Some people call it jury deselection because you, you're you allowed, uh, you know, nine strikes. You can get rid of nine jurors. Um, each side can, the state, 
and the defense can get rid of nine jurors, you're not picking the ones you want. It's not jury selection. You're, you're, you're getting rid of the ones that scare you the most and uh, of the qualified jurors. But you're talking to 40, 50 people trying to find out as much as you can about them in a couple of hours. And, and that is an exhausting interaction. It's so important. You have to be so in tune to it. So it's kind of like you go through this gauntlet before you really start. So in response to your question, like, it's such an important part, Wadire. It's your first chance to really connect with the jury, at least some of them. And uh, it's, uh, it drains me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wears me out. But once the trial starts, it's just uh, um, it's the reason that I became a lawyer uh, somewhere, somehow. It's my purpose and it's my passion. It's real. There's nothing more real than being involved in a jury trial with, with real consequences, real lives at stake. There's a reason that they don't make movies about, like, you know, like transactional attorneys. And that's no, I have great friends who do transactional attorneys and, or who are transactional attorneys, and they do good work, and there's people that need them, but there's not that many movies about them. There's a bunch of movies about trial lawyers. And you can't write a movie about a trial before it happens either. I, one thing I know and the one thing that I, I will swear to every time is that you can prepare all, and I see this with young attorneys all the time, I was this young attorney. You prepare and you prepare and you prepare and you're trying to control your anxiety. Um, you want to have control of the situation, you want to be ready for anything that can happen. But at some point you learn that there, there is no way you can prepare for what is going to happen in that trial. Once you get in there, the wheels are going to come off the bus. Uh, what you thought you knew is going to change, and you've got to be able to adjust and adapt and know that you can handle going down whichever road. It, and I've seen this with clients, too. They want to be able to control what happens. It, they Often with, like, who, assuming that if this person testifies, it's all over. Um, you know, kind of discounting the whole... Uh, cross-examination or right. that, that you'll get and stuff, but uh, there's just this, with attorneys and clients, there's this, like, desire to have control. And the thing about and the beauty of a trial is everyone loses control, prosecutors, attorneys, uh, judges, and you see something new every, with every single trial. So there's a couple things you said that are, that's interesting to me there. First is that idea of control, because I do think that so many lawyers are control freaks, and they're, they're type A usually, they're OCD, they're anal, whatever you may, whatever you want to call it. It's a fairly common trait among the legal profession, but that is a unique idea that when you put enough of those people in one room, and it's an adversarial process, and really the most powerful person in the room kind of is the witness, right? Like, what they say is kind of going to change the trajectory of where you're going. Not so much. The cross may be a little different. You know, that's kind of our chance to do Nothing work, the attorneys say is evidence. I mean, the evidence comes from the, the witness box, the witness's mouth, or it comes from, uh, you know, things that are introduced in evidence. So you're absolutely but right. But I think you can probably prepare better for how a judge may rule on an issue you may have. You probably have an idea of how it's going to go or, or w- what kind of direction the, other, the prosecutor's going to go with the case. But a witness might say something that you've literally never heard of, that you've never heard before. They may say a name or a fact or something that you had that was just shocking to you. I, I would say that they almost, especially important witnesses, almost always say something that no one's ever heard. People can, you know, witnesses can be interviewed five to ten times by the prosecutor and uh, before trial, and they can have them exactly where they think they need them. Uh, you know, an attorney can speak with their client that they've met with a hundred times, and you know, the defendant in the case, and put them on the stand when they're testifying for their life. And things can come out that have never come up before because that is a special place. Uh, it's like a there's a force field or a, a vortex around the, the witness box. That The one thing that I do know is it, new things will come out, uh, and everyone loses control when a witness gets put in that box and gets to ask questions from both sides, and all eyes are on them. 
So I, I want to, and then the other, I told you there were a couple of things you said earlier. You said, you know, when you were a young attorney, you had that anxiety. You wanted to be in control. You wanted to know exactly what was going to happen. And, and we've talked about over the past 10 years, you may have, if very possible, you've tried more felony cases in the circuit than anybody. We don't know, but it's possible. It, was there ever, is there a time that stands out to you that you felt like you went from that young attorney to, okay, I, I've kind of taken a step up now. Like I, I've kind of, I, I, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to brag, but I'm just saying, was there a, a turning point in your career where you're like, I'm not the young, new attorney anymore. I, I have a new level of confidence now, and I'm, and I'm ready to go. I remember early on, uh, that's a great question, and uh, um, I remember early on, you know, searching for mentors or who did I want to be like. I wanted to be a trial attorney. I'm still terrified of public speaking and, and you know, in a lot of ways. I wasn't a loud person and never have been in law school, but for some reason there was something inside me that wanted to, uh, I guess, be a part of something so real. In order to do that, you have to be able to speak publicly, um, which is terrifying. I, I, I think that, I don't know if it's the number one or number two fear of everybody is, is either death or public speaking. Uh, one of them's two, one of them's one, but it's, uh, I think number one may be public speaking followed by death. But um, it, I was trying to emulate and be, I felt like early on become like other attorneys, but at some point I realized that like I needed to find my own style and it has to come from something authentic in who I am. Uh, you know, with flavors and uh, um, respect for other people's styles and the way they do things. But I know my first mentor, who I just, you know, I have a hard time talking about any trial without, you know, going back and thinking about her, um, had a very uh, aggressive, unique uh, style. She was just one of the best trial attorneys I've ever seen. And I, I wanted to be that kind of bulldog, but it wasn't me. It didn't fit me. I had to pull back a little bit. I, I can be nicer to witnesses. I can be less direct. That's a better style for me. It's more effective style for me. It doesn't mean there's anything that, that she was doing that was wrong, but it was it was hard to... When I could distinguish myself from the the trial attorney I thought I wanted to be or the, the closest mentor that I had, um, I think that was a turning point. But I will tell you, Ryan, that uh, in the past three or four trials, I feel like I have learned more and progressed more uh, in certain areas uh, of the process than I ever have. Uh, it is a continuous process. Um, you can always get better um, at essentially your role. Uh, our role and my role is to uh, be a part of the truth-finding process. We want justice. It's so hard to find justice these days. And if you just embrace that role, don't try to control too much, but embrace the role as uh, the advocate and uh, question the witnesses and confront the witnesses. And don't be afraid. I was, I was really afraid to ask certain questions and probably ask less questions early on. And I felt like I always struggled with cross-examination so I wanted to have that control. It's hard to give up that control and to have the faith that if the witness says this or that, which way will I go? But just kind of giving that up and having confidence in myself to say, I'll know where to go. And if I don't, it's okay. I'll make mistakes. Um, but I'm doing it at a pretty high level. And uh, I have confidence that I will continue to do that. I'm not perfect. I'm human. My client is. The prosecutor is. The ju- way the judges are certainly human. But all 12 of those jurors are about as human as you get. So I have... I have one more kind of question I want to ask that's off topic from this. So before we before we move on, is there anything else that you would just like to add that I haven't asked about as far as 
what goes into prepping for trial from client or lawyer perspective or what something that's important that I haven't asked about just as far as kind of leading up to it, making the decision to do it, anything like that, that, that we haven't really talked about. Is there anything that really stands out? And there may not be. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, one thing that stands out is, is when your cases that actually go to trial, I think you've got a couple of differences. Sometimes the, the client doesn't have an option. They're being offered a whole bunch of time and it's either trial or plea and uh you know, it makes the decision easy, but when, when clients yeah, are when the, when the wreck is life or trial, it's it's know, easier. It's an easier decision. Or even if it's twenty years and like that's all you could say. I mean, uh, it makes it easier. Um, or you know, if the wreck is, is is something, even on a fifteen a case that may carry fifteen years, if the wreck is you know five or ten, and it's it, it's a case some clients feel like they'll be just as good off getting fifteen years with parole and everything. I mean, it's just not the same kind of choice. But in a difficult decision. Uh, and you you can take it to the extreme and say the client's being offered probation, or you can go to trial, knowing that the judge is likely not going to give you probation. I mean, it's happened once I can think of, right, but twice that I can think of in my career, and I think that it, on some levels that was attributed to the way the case was tried and changing the mind of the judge during the course of the trial. I don't think that was just random that that happened, but it is rare. Uh, I haven't heard of it of many people getting probation after being convicted of a felony uh, count on any indictment to a jury trial, but I think the thing that stands out to me is when the clients actually have a choice, it comes down to uh, really whether or not they are the type of person that has the courage and the faith. Um, people talk about faith and God and all this, but like it takes real faith and courage to, to put your hands uh, and your trust not just into the system, but into your attorney, into those 12 jurors, those strangers, and say, uh, you know, I believe that the system will work, that our truth-finding process will work. And when I think back to the clients that were able to make those decisions, those tough decisions in terms of opting for a trial, rather than taking the probation, you get to go home, you know. Uh, your life's going to be annoying. you got to, you know, do drug tests, pay fines. You may be a convicted felon, but you have your freedom. Uh, you're not in a cage. You pick out the clothes you put on in the morning. You pick out what you're going to put in your mouth to eat. Um it's serious. Uh, it takes a client with real courage and faith being willing to take a risk. Um, and that's not something that me as an attorney or, or any attorney can really control. You have to have a special client to go to a jury trial. And I, and I want to ask you a question. How does that make you feel? And do you think that is is consistent with – these are the things I think about a lot. I've been fortunate to, to represent a lot of courageous clients and uh, and to sit next to them and fight. But Sometimes I find myself reflecting on whether or not this is what our founding fathers envisioned when they wrote in uh, the right to a trial by jury in, into our founding documents, whether or not they envisioned it would be uh, less than 1% of cases where it would be exercised in a system that was designed to plea. Um, and, and what I feel is sometimes my profession that encourages the pleas and, and isn't part of the, uh, you know, making the system work the way that it was kind of uh, written to work. It's a protection that, that people are treated like they're crazy these days. You're, you're facing all this and you're going to a jury trial? Sometimes I feel like uh, people think you're crazy, depending on what county. So do you think that what you've seen in your experience, the way that our, our, our trial system, and particularly jury trial system, works is what our founding fathers had, had in mind? So, so I will answer the question in part and then maybe follow up with another question because that begs a question to me as a young attorney you know i, I there, there's a simple truth that if if every single person on a court calendar said i'm ready for trial and refused to plea 
there would be no one going to prison. It would be maybe one at a time, and it would be slow, and it, it would completely, in my opinion, if everyone demanded a trial, the, the, the system could simply not sustain that. I, I really think that if if there was this mass, and this is probably unrealistic, but if every single defense attorney and defendant on a 250-person calendar call said, Your Honor, we're ready for trial, we want to be tried, we're filing speedy trials, we want to be tried in the next two terms of court. The system would come to a grinding halt. It couldn't be done. And you know, I don't think we'd have to debate about that. And there's an argument for whether that's something that defense attorneys as a whole should be cons- – I mean, you know, that's a different discussion probably. But I, I think that a trial by jury is kind of the purest American idea in that – that is kind of we, we, it took us a long time to get here um, and and what I I think that it's being eroded but not because of the fact that a trial can't be fair necessarily or because of any reason other than the sentencing ranges on crimes scare people out of trial and I, I've had cases where we've had that five-year probation offer on a case that was super defensible I mean what I would say in my short career at this point would, would have been the best chance I had at prevailing at trials to this point on a case that didn't go to trial, okay, if that makes sense. Like the most defensible case that was not tried. And, and it was a probation officer offer, but the, the exposure at trial was decades. I mean, almost half a century of time. And, you know, I don't think my client lacked courage. I think he made a rational decision. He took five years of probation. I think people are risk-averse. Um, um, and if you put me in the same chair, I would have taken the. I would probably would have done the same thing in that situation. Now, if we're talking about doing ten or fifteen years, that's a little different calculation. But and that kind of is my question to you, as someone who's been doing it longer, is what impact do you think the the, the pure exposure like is the trial tax real? And when I say trial tax, you know, hey, he was offered two years, three years, five years, went to trial, was convicted, and because of that, he's going to get twenty. Is that is that a real thing? Is it is it kind of a myth? Because my clients, that are, especially the ones that are in jail, they they talk, they ask me about this. They say, you know, I've heard from other people in here. If I go to trial, I'm gonna be sitting down the road, and I might not ever come back. Like, is that is that a real concern that clients should have? Uh, absolutely, and I think uh, I think you probably know. It depends on what judge it is. We can try to have some level of predictability, but like. You know, if there's there's certain judges that you're familiar with enough, and I think some judges and most judges try to be consistent with the way they sentence. Uh, and that's some uh, of the best things we can ask for is yeah. to at least have an idea. I yeah. think of how when you're trying to advise someone on, on the choices they have, the real life choices they have, you want to have as much, uh, uh, you know consistency and, and predictability as possible, and to be able to say if you get convicted, you will go to prison or you will go to prison for the you know a number of years. We have no crystal ball, but it, it's important information. Um, if this, then that. Uh, if you're convicted, you will go to prison. And I, and I think you can say that with most judges. In some, you can say you're going to go to prison for longer. Um, but uh, it is certainly uh, a huge motivating factor, especially with you know the, the potential for long sentences. And, and no judge wants to be labeled as being soft on crime. And judges want to move dockets and calendars. How do you do that? You deter trials. You encourage pleas. Encourage. I mean, you could also encourage the DAs to, to dismiss uh, crappy cases, which they do sometimes. But at the same time, you hammer people that get convicted, and uh, you know, you go back to the, somebody goes back to the jail and says, you know, this happened to me. It's, everybody else is going to line up to take the best plea offer too, because right. it's, it's numbers. Uh, there's one thing I want to add. It'd be great to have some kind of t- statistics on this, which is. I think the nature of our justice system in Georgia makes it almost impossible. But I had a very close friend uh, in in undergraduate college who went, who's a, he's a professor, he's a PhD uh, guy now, and he went to uh, I know he went 
to the John Jay Criminal Justice School in uh, uh, New York somewhere. Um, but he did his thesis or was involved with some research on like uh, the federal sentencing guidelines, which are a little have a little more predictability. Than, There's a ton of research into that. Yeah. You can actually quantify and you get some data, but you know he did experiments and you know I consulted with him on try to make the the scenarios as real life as possible. You know the, the people are either innocent or they're not, and they're given their their uh, their options. You know what they're likely to get if convicted, and uh, it was amazing what the empirical data said about the number of people that were not guilty that were choosing to take a plea bargain, accept responsibility for something they didn't do, in order to uh, avoid the risk of longer exposure in prison or whatever if, if the trial result didn't go well. 100%. And I, I think that without getting on too much of a tangent, like the federal federal law has much more uh, detailed set of guidelines when it comes to sentencing than on the state level. For, like, for instance, I think one of the most popular crimes other than drug crimes you see is like an aggravated assault here in Georgia. And that carry, you can that's, you can be sentenced from anywhere from one year of probation to 20 years in prison on that, you know, and it's it's a huge gap. And what you say is true. I've never ceased to be amazed and surprised by the ways that you, and the weapons and the, all the different ways you can commit aggravated assault in Georgia. It's yeah. one of the most diverse crimes it's there on, is. It's on the calendar more often than any other crime. I've seen it with the I've seen it with a decorative cross, you know, guns, fists. Every, I mean, yeah. I'm telling you, I, it, I will be surprised probably next week by some aggravated assault yeah, there that are, I see. There is an unlimited. There is no finite number of ways that you can be alleged to have committed that. But. So I, I really, and we're gonna we're wrapping up here in the next couple of minutes. We, we've been over half an hour here, but um, if you don't have anything else about that, what I, what I would ask is, we've been talking a lot about just kind of from client perspective and courage. If from a lawyer to lawyer perspective, if you're talking to a to a younger attorney, you know, say me or something, for instance, and and you had to give them one piece of advice if they want to if they want to be a trial attorney and try cases and really go down that route, and and this goes for I know for a fact there are we don't have many listeners, but I know that there are other lawyers who listen. What is a what is a tip or a piece of advice or and it may even be something for self care or client care or legal or anything like that. What would what would your one tip be? You know, asking an attorney for one tip is... Uh, You're like, well, I've got seven. <laughs> yeah. you know, well, if you want to break the laws, I'll give you an exception. The first thing that comes to mind... I didn't mind, want to put you on the spot. I mean, like, give me your top five things, you'd say. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, and I tell a lot of my clients, you know, is really when it comes down to it, there, there's two decisions that are ultimately yours, and you can rely on my advice all day long. Um, but these are decisions that are yours, and they will never be mine. Uh, but they will always make the choice based on the way their options are presented. And those two are usually whether or not they decide to exercise their right to a trial or whether or not they um, uh, choose to uh, take a plea or, or, or aggressively plea bargain. The other one is whether or not they testify if they do go to trial or not. But what I would tell attorneys is just don't discount the the way that the options are presented and your own biases and, and a, you know, a subjective or objective approach or desire affects the choice that is made. The way that the options are presented by you, the attorney, is going to have a huge effect on what choice is made. And if you really want somebody to go to trial, you may present the options differently. You may uh, present the risk differently. And it's it's hard to be objective based on what what we want. We know we have that control and that power. And the does, other does that real quick does that pose like a little bit of an ethical dilemma in some scenarios though, where like 
you know, I think we have a duty to really make sure our clients understand their options. How, yes. How do we stay clear of trying to persuade them one way or the other and just make sure they know exactly what their options are? I think uh, if you I mean it really, if your heart's in the right place, it'll be easier. But I've been disappointed a lot of times when clients have taken plea bargains and entered pleas because I wanted to go to trial. Mm-hmm. And I have my expectation is I will continue to live with this dis- disappointment. It is a small uh, burden for me to carry. Uh, for my, you know, because I enjoy going to trial or because I want to get a better result. Um, it's their decision, I, and if I present the options as objectively as I can, uh, at least try to be conscious of it, then I can live with it. But it, it disappointed me a lot early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's something I expect now. The other thing I would say is don't be afraid to uh, embrace the role that you play in the system and the truth-finding process. Don't be afraid to go to trial. Uh, believe in the system. Have faith in it. And... Uh, um, I, you know, I I know that a lot of times, it, especially with the solo practitioners and stuff, if you go to trial, you're shutting your practice down. Money tightens up, and 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 financial stuff can be a big concern. But uh, it's just too important, and it's too real. That there's just something about the reality of it and the realness of it that is special that that you can never put a price tag on. Well, great. Um, go ahead and tell people where uh, you know as we wrap it up here today. Uh, episode four of the Georgia Criminal Law Podcast presented to you by J. Ryan Brown Law. Go ahead and tell people uh, your information again, just where they can find you and everything like that, and we'll wrap up for the day. I am Charlie Cobble. That's C-A-U-B-L-E. I have not changed the spelling to C-O-B-B-L-E yet. Um, you can reach, uh, you can come find me downtown Noonan, uh, 13A Jackson Street. Uh, you can uh, check us out online at Cobble at, co- or excuse me, CobbleLawFirm.com. My email is Cobble at CobbleLawFirm.com. And you can call us at 678-712-3466. Call and uh, talk to myself or Joni, who uh, takes each and every case personally and does our very best to get the best result for every client. And just proud to be here and proud to be working in the same community that you are, Ryan. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, you were the first guest here on the Georgia Criminal Law Podcast. We look forward to having many more. Um, again, presented to you by J. Ryan Brown Law here in downtown Noonan in the Commercial House at 19 Perry Street, um, Suite 202. Phone number is 470-635-1725. Come see us. Just pop your head in and say hello if you're in town. And again, thanks to Charlie Cobble for coming in and being the first guest. And all of you people have a wonderful week, and we will be back soon.